3: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last week, many of us received a text telling us power interruptions may occur unless you take action. If you're like me, you ran around the house, turn out lights, unplugging stuff. The text worked. Governor Newsom congratulated us for all our energy preservation, but the episode highlighted a major problem. How much trouble is the grid really in as our climate continues to change and as we add more solar and wind supply while also adding more electric vehicle demand? We'll be talking about how California's power grid works and what it means for our everyday lives. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When you think about the electrical grid, well, assuming you do every few years, you probably don't see an accomplishment for the ages. But it is a marvel of engineering, the backbone of modern American life, and a great example of what the historian David Nye called the technological sublime. Operating the grid requires precisely balancing the supply of electricity from all kinds of sources, natural gas plant, solar installations, hydropower, With all of the users of electricity. And almost all the time, somehow, by the unceasing work of the grid operators here and across the country, the lights stay on. But most of the grid was built decades ago, when most electricity was produced by burning the rocks we call coal. That was before we deranged the climate, before transmission equipment had caused devastating fires and bankrupted PG&E, before solar panels and wind turbines had become as cheap as fossil fuels, before electric cars were as commonplace as taquerias. So we're gonna talk about this new era for the grid. And joining us for the hour, we've got Ivan Penn, a Los Angeles-based energy correspondent for the New York Times, welcome Ivan. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, Duncan Calloway, an associate professor of energy and resources at UC Berkeley, welcome Duncan. Thanks very much. And Sasha Von Meyer, she's now an independent consultant, but also retired UC Berkeley professor of electrical engineering. And she was director of electric grid research at the California Institute for Energy and Environment for a decade. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you. Good morning. So, last week on Tuesday, with record breaking temperatures across the state, many of us received this notification that we were talking about that power interruptions may occur unless you take action. Ivan, you were watching all this happen in real time, right? I mean, this was a major event for our electrical system here in the state.
2: That's right. Actually, I I got one of those uh, text messages. Uh, I think there were about 27 million of us uh, who got them. Uh, And yeah, I was watching this uh, throughout the day and actually the the days leading up to Tuesday uh, because the core of the issue was, you know, how the temperatures were going to affect not only um, how much usage we were having, but also uh, the the impact on on equipment, the power mm-hmm. plants, and and uh, you know the higher the temperatures, it also reduces uh, the the output and the capacity on our system. So you know there's a lot of different dynamics as as uh, you all introduced. It's it's a complex system, and there climate change has made it even more complex.
3: Yeah. Duncan Calloway, I mean, you taught a class the next day and you looked at exactly what happened after that text alert was sent. Can you kind of break down what was happening at the time and what happened after the text? Sure. Yeah. So um, interestingly, I teach a class on
4: uh, forecasting and prediction in energy and environmental systems. And so I, I wanted to use this as a real world example for my students to understand the importance of um making predictions for what's going to happen in the future in this case what is electricity demand going to be but then also what happens when your predictions may differ from what actually um, occurs and so i had this wonderful example to show the students in the class that electricity demand was moving along according to forecast and the forecast wasn't good and then we could see at 5:48 pm when the governor's office of emergency services issued that something that sounded like an Amber Alert on our phones, uh, you could see from the data um, that right at that moment, demand just fell off like a rock. It was, for those of us that work on the grid, it was just an extraordinary outcome, something like two to 3% reduction in demand in the matter of about 10 minutes. So it was very exciting to see California consumers,
3: you know, step up and uh, do their part to bring electricity demand levels down. People listening out there may not think 2 to 3% of demand is a lot. But like, what's the, what's the equivalent if we were to have to like produce that power?
4: Uh, that's the equivalent to a number of very large electricity generators. So mm-hmm. it, the actual amount that got dropped, it takes a bit more data analysis to say for sure. But it, I would say it's on the order of about a gigawatt of electricity consumption. Um, on a roughly 52 gigawatt uh, peak demand day.
3: So mm-hmm. that's um, a couple of very large gas generators. Yeah. Uh, Sasha, let's put this in context. You've been studying these phenomena and the grid for a really long time. I mean, what was your takeaway from what happened last week, both the kind of danger zone that we got into and how we got out of it?
5: Yeah, I think that uh, it really was quite a success. Yeah. Um, I think we have to keep in mind, and you described this well, I think that the conditions are really unprecedented. And, you know, there were temperature records broken, demand uh, records broken. I mean, it was uh, so much, we had several gigawatts more electric demand uh, than ever before, right? Mm. Um, And so I think this, we really have to adjust our expectations. I thought that uh, the way people responded uh, was phenomenal and I thought you know of, of the grid operators a little bit like Sully landing that airplane in the Hudson River you know <laughs> uh, and the utilities are like the flight attendants who so are trying to evacuate the plane uh, without anyone getting hurt and they're asking us to please follow the instructions and leave our stuff behind, which mm-hmm. is the least we can do. Um, you know, I think in the when you look at the big picture of what climate change is actually doing, you know, you think about Pakistan getting flooded, you think about people's homes burning up and wildfires, turning your thermostat back a couple of degrees is not that much to ask. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, w- the message that uh, we really got right is that we are in in this together. Um, And that at this point, it's not about money, it's about making sure that the most vulnerable people, you know, folks with medical needs, uh, don't suffer an unexpected outage, and that we can uh, sort of discriminate more carefully between what's a convenience and what's a life or death use of electricity.
3: Mm -hmm. Also, just as a as a writer, I really appreciate it. It was an incredibly well-written statement of our community, you know? <laughs> like, unless you take action, there may be these things. It was it was really well done. We're talking about the state of California's electrical grid with Sasha von Meyer, an independent consultant and retired UC Berkeley professor of electrical engineering, Duncan Calloway, associate professor of energy and resources at UC Berkeley, and Ivan Penn, Los Angeles-based energy correspondent for The New York Times. We really think of this as a show. We've got three experts on what's happening with California's electrical grid. We want your questions for them. Like, what have you always wondered about how this system has worked, is working, will work in the future? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, uh, Ivan, we've, we've touched on it a little bit, but I thought maybe you could go into a little bit more depth on why was last week so challenging for the state, and what, what did you learn as you researched that question?
2: Well, so it, 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 the, the major pieces, of course, were the extreme temperatures. And it's not just that it was, uh, you saw record-breaking temperatures like Sacramento, 116, yeah, Yeah. I mean, you know, these were very extreme temperatures, but it's not just that it was in particular places, it was the entire state was seeing triple digit temperatures. So now we're not just talking about uh, the the grid manager um, and the grid managers because, so the California independent system operator manages the grid uh, for about 80% of the state. Uh, and the investor-owned utilities that many know about, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, Southern California, Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric. But then there are others, uh, the Sacramento uh, Municipal Utility District, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. So you've got all of these players in the state and not only were you know, particular areas dealing with it, but the entire state was. So the complexity of that uh, put a lot of strain uh, on the grid. And, you know, we've got new dynamics at play that we, you know, a, a decade ago, we didn't have the numbers of electric vehicles that now are charging. Um, some offset, we've got rooftop solar and batteries, um, but there, there is an enormous amount of uh, pressure on the system. And we also work with our neighboring states, um, a whole nother set of complex issues. But we're working with them as well. And that heat dome was all over the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got an, an enormous uh, complexity, a lot of strain and, and all these different variables coming together for uh, you know, a, uh, a really difficult crisis to manage. And that
3: spread of that heat dome, just like the, the sheer size uh, and area that it covered, at least according to our current understanding, that's actually a climatological effect, right? I mean, that the, the growth of those heat domes is something that has changed.
2: Well, you, and you see it in, in almost uh, every area of what we're dealing with as far as climate. So we have the extreme temperatures, the heat during the summer, but also the cold during the winter. So last year we saw that in Texas. Um, where we had the extreme uh, cold weather uh, that took out pretty much the entire Texas grid uh, and which became a concern on the heat side for us last week, Uh, you know, how much can the system uh, uh, handle? And not only uh, is it a matter of, you know, what it can handle, but all of these pressures from climate, the heat, the cold, some of the The uh, power plants uh, tripped um, and had equipment issues uh, for California. We saw that in the cold in Texas. Uh, And then you have the other parts of the system, the power lines, the poles, both the transmission, long distance um, uh, transmission of of electricity and the distribution, what connects your homes and businesses. Uh, You know, those are being taxed. In Louisiana, we saw that uh, in Hurricane Ida. So it's constantly a lot of these challenges. Yeah,
3: Man, I've never spent so much time thinking about electricity uh, as I have in the last few years. We're talking about the state of California's electrical grid with Ivan Penn, an LA-based energy correspondent for the New York Times, Duncan Callaway, Associate Professor of Energy and Resources at UC Berkeley, and Sasha Von Meyer, studied the grid for decades, now an independent consultant. We wanna know what you think what you want to know about California's grid phone lines are full but you can try Twitter Facebook Instagram it's KQED forum and the email is always forum at kqed.org I'm Alexis Madrigal stay tuned for more after the break
0: support for forum comes from San Francisco opera
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the state of California's energy grid with Ivan Penn, reporter with the New York Times, Duncan Calloway, UC Berkeley, and Sasha von Meyer, grid researcher, now an independent consultant. I promise we'd go to the phones early and often. Uh, Stephen in Napa, welcome to the show.
7: Hi, good morning. Um, I'm just curious what... Uh how is the electricity generated in a breakdown by sector to support our grid? And I'll take my answer off the
1: air.
3: Sure. And I assume you're talking about by, by sort of technology, hydro, gas, like that. That's what you're thinking? Yeah. Okay, great. We'll take yes. it. Thanks, Stephen. Um, sure. Uh, why don't we go to uh, you, Duncan Calaway. Like Talk about um, California's energy uh, supply mix.
4: Sure. So
3: um, actually, until
4: somewhere recently... Grids all over, in California is no exception, were supplied mostly by, as you mentioned, Alexis, hydroelectric plants, coal fired generators, natural gas plants, and nuclear plants. Um, coal has been outlawed in California for a while now, but recently throughout the world, but especially in California, the supply mix has changed um, in pretty exciting ways uh, toward increasing wind and solar, and more recently, energy storage. Um, we're also losing gas generators uh, in California due to environmental regulations. We've, um, as some of you may know, we just kept a nuclear generator online uh, and that's going to stick around for another decade or so at least. Um, I think that what I'd like to just point out um, in regard to what happened uh, last week in our supply mix that I think is very exciting is that um, On peak, when electricity consumption was at its highest, uh, if you count rooftop solar and and centralized utility solar, solar was actually supplying more than 30% of our electricity demand. And I think that's just an extraordinary story about the kind of technological change that we've seen over the last decade. And the other thing that I'd like to point out is about storage. So, so far we've actually mentioned something about electricity demand dropping off when that text went out. But I think there's an also, just an absolutely amazing story to tell about storage. So if you look at what was on the grid in California two years ago, we had essentially negligible amounts of storage.
3: And we're talking week, here
4: batteries and other technologies. You, yeah. it's mostly right. batteries, so right? Mostly, yeah. mostly, actually, almost exclusively lithium-ion batteries. Um, the same kind of batteries that you see in electric cars or in your laptop, for that matter. Um, so... It was then around the time that solar was dropping off that the flex alert went so demand was also starting to fall at that point, um, but not as fast as solar was dropping off so there was something needed to increase its output at that point. Uh, storage batteries came online to the tune of about three gigawatts, or six percent of the supply in the state, when that mm-hmm. flex alert or when that um, emergency message went out. That was not there three or even two years ago, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that this is a very exciting sign for what we can expect to keep doing in the future. And that is continuing to use these new technologies like solar and storage in concert with flexibility and when consumers are using their electricity to maintain that
3: grid balance. You know, Sasha,
0: oh, go
5: ahead, ahead. I I would like to chime in on that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there were people following the news last week, ready to pounce with schadenfreude on rolling blackouts in California to claim that, oh, renewables are useless. And in fact, the opposite is true, right? I think we've shown that yes, we can make this work. Um, it takes a little bit of adjustment in how we coordinate the resources. So, you know, for example, the net load peak is now much later, um, after the sun sets, as Duncan said. You know, that's when you know we hadn't turned the corner in the afternoon, as used to be the case with the air conditioning peak. But the net load peak is closer to 8 p.m. Uh, at night Um, and so we have to learn to uh to utilize all the resources at our disposal to uh, manage the storage assets and fortunately we are procuring more storage in california uh, going forward i think uh, really it's a success that shows with some um, active management uh, we can work with those intermittent resources and the storage and also some flexibility in the demand, because I think that's just ultimately the largest resource that we have is to be smarter about what electricity we really need in a particular moment and what we don't. And if we think about, for instance, the growth in uh, EV charging loads uh, and electrification in general, you know, as we go, uh, from natural gas uh, heating, for instance, to electric heat pumps for uh, space and water heating, all these things that we have to do to get to zero carbon, uh, I think it's fair for people to ask, you know, how is the grid going to handle those additional uh, demands? But the answer is that those demands also are quite flexible in how we can shape them, and for instance, charge cars when the sun is shining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, oh, and. I, I-
3: Oh, 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 let's just, I just want to uh, go, go back to phones and, and just note that, you know, one of the fascinating lessons of last week is that information, like just getting information to people, was actually able to substitute for some infrastructure. And it's one of those times that's, that's pretty exciting. People have been talking about it for, for quite some time, being able to, to do that.
2: And if I could weigh in on, on and kind of on that point, um, I mean, one of, one of the considerations that, uh, you know, it was it was a powerful moment that consumers responded. But um, it also has to be remembered that the power system, the utility industry, they have two primary responsibilities and it is to deliver safe and reliable uh, electricity and at a low cost. So it is their responsibility to make sure that the system functions. Mm -hmm. And um, there have been issues raised about getting the forecasting correct. Um, and and given that we're dealing with the impacts of climate change right now, this is their job. And so the consumer was asked to support, to help them with their job, which is a whole nother question.
3: hmm That's a good point. Hey, uh, Larry in Mill Valley, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. This is
7: great. So. Something happened this last month that you guys know about, but the magnitude of it is not being appreciated. I'm talking about the VV, VPP, the virtual power plant, when a bunch of people with uh, Tesla storage batteries let their electricity go to the grid at two bucks a kilowatt and, uh, and, and covered the, the peak. And as Rifkin wrote in the Third Industrial Revolution uh, about 10 years ago, this is really where we got to go. And we're there. We have made it. we just got to flesh it out everywhere. And that is to be able to, all of us have storage, solar, and then storage batteries. And when necessary, when we get to these peak periods, is to send it out, and then we can fill it back up with, uh, with our solar and need less and less and less of these power plants. It's so exciting. I wish it was all over the headlines, I'm so glad you guys are talking about
3: this. <laughs> Hey thanks so much Larry I you know Sasha can we talk about this a little bit and I, I just want to it'd be great if you could flesh out what the vision what this particular vision for uh, future grid infrastructure is which is much more distributed not just sort of grid scale storage as people talk about you know uh, like run by utilities but also individual people say who have solar panels and batteries in their own homes being able to act as this you know quote unquote virtual power plant
5: Right, and I think there's a, there's a couple of different uh, directions uh, that this can go. Uh, I mean, the overwhelming innovation here is, as you said, the information technology and just the ability to manage on a much more granular scale, right, on a finer scale uh, in space and time, uh, electricity. So we have now the ability uh, to, you know, have battery storage for a house. Um, it's pretty expensive you know personally I have a small inexpensive battery and all that powers is my desktop computer and my Wi-Fi so that mm-hmm. if the power's out I can you know finish what I'm working on um, and I think the point here is that for different kinds of uses of electricity we uh, there's different priorities um, but uh, other than you know running a house or some individual appliances, Off of a battery it's technically quite possible to uh, take an aggregation of customers and operate them as a microgrid that could be flexible flexible in its connection to the Mm -hmm. the main grid right Um, and we already have that today with uh, for example university campuses or uh, commercial facilities uh, that operate their property uh, it could be multiple buildings, multiple solar or other generators and storage as microgrids. The benefit uh, is that you know those resources can provide services to the rest of the grid under blue sky conditions but on a bad day they can either help the grid or make sure that locally people are okay and they can locally prioritize. Mm. Um, I think that there's uh, microgrids are a huge opportunity to, you know, simultaneously uh, meet our carbon goals, uh, but also resilience, because the fact of the matter is there will be extreme weather events, and um, I think all of society is better off when we have pockets of uh, electricity supply as opposed to, you know, the whole state or large areas uh, being out Um, I think, of course, in addition to decarbonization and resilience, um, there's the point of equity and making sure that people have equal access to those kinds of microgrid resources, and I think that's the big question of how can we navigate sort of the local provision of Uh, power quality and reliability versus what's the responsibility of the the macro grid. Mm -hmm. Uh, How can we be sure that uh, people of lower income aren't adversely affected?
3: Yeah. You know, we've got a bunch of uh, questions coming in uh, about electric cars. Craig writes, what will the state need to do to meet demand for electricity that will come with the large scale conversion to electric cars? Of course, mandated by the the state uh, and coming up. Uh, Daphne writes, some media reports said that the recent electric grid problems proved that California couldn't handle transitioning to electric cars since car owners were asked not to charge their vehicles. My understanding is that they were, in fact, asked not to charge vehicles during the high surge hours from 4 to 9 p.m. Since many cars are charged at off-peak hours, the idea that electric cars push the grid into danger isn't true, is it? What's the impact of electric cars on the grid now and in the future? Great question, Daphne. And let's start to you, Duncan.
4: Yeah, great. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. So this is a, an area where um, my own research group does some uh, some things. And I, I wanted to actually talk about a few things that should be happening in the future. And the first actually comes back to one of the points that Ivan made about energy forecasting. Um, and what happened last week was an anomaly according to the kinds of forecasting methods that um, are typically used in in California sector. However, if we can start incorporating climate change forecasts into our energy forecasting methods, mm-hmm. I think that those sorts of anomalies are going to start to look a
3: little bit less uh, extraordinary. So, and, and just to so be clear, right, mm-hmm. we have two kinds of models. Right, we have these kind of day ahead models, right, and then we have yes. kind of real time. Yeah, yeah, that's
4: right. And so I'm actually thinking about uh, a third type of model, which is forecasting out many years. So Mm. I think the biggest challenge that we have right now is making sure that we build enough generation capacity to meet this sort of coming surge in demand, where that demand is coming from electric cars, but also increasing demand for cooling due to increasing climate Mm. uh, temperatures. So I think that there's a tremendous need for Um, advancing our own state of practice in terms of how we incorporate climate change models into the forecast that we then use to plan what future infrastructure is going to be. The second thing that I think needs to happen, and I've mentioned this a little bit before, is that we have to just keep our foot on the accelerator for building solar and storage There's there's massive amounts of targets uh, to the tune of tens of gigawatts of new capacity from these types of sources that folks recognize we need to maintain a reliable operating system, and and and, and I fully expect that um, if if we can hit those targets, we will have a reliable system. Now, there's a lot of work to make sure that we can actually build everything that folks think needs to be built. Mm. But then, now let me come to the electric vehicle part and the and the, and the flexible demand. So, if you think about, you know, a typical electric car has something like 300 miles of range, but few of us actually drive that far in a given day, and so there are tremendous opportunities to, as Sasha mentioned before, to sort of shape and sculpt the demand of electric cars, among other things. Here's where I think there's a very exciting set of new initiatives and challenges on the horizon, and that is what kinds of mechanisms do we want to use to encourage electricity consumers to consume electricity at times when it works for the grid and won't result in a blackout. So what happened last week was the most extreme possible version you can imagine of that, which is a message from the governor saying, <laughs> please stop. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a sustainable model, right? Like we're not, everybody's gonna eventually tune out that sort of a message. And so then the question becomes, what can we do to make it uh, a more integratable part of our lives? And so I think there's two exciting things that could be happening here. The California Public Utilities Commission is exploring new models for pricing electricity in ways that will reflect times when there's an abundance of electricity versus scarcity. And then the other thing that's happening is that there are third-party companies like um, Ohm Connect or NLX that can come in and help customers sort of shape their demand, basically offer to control their loads for them, Mm -hmm. or give them the right kind of signal so that they will actually then uh, sort of minimize their own cost to doing something like EV charging And one of our listeners actually yeah, wrote ahead. in,
3: Richard wrote in to say, I use Ohm Connect, the the service you were just mentioning, to help with the power grid. I signed up and they requested that I shut off as much as possible during directed Ohm hours. And they automatically turn off connected smart plugs. For doing this, we get points which directly translate to dollars. We've been doing it for three years and love helping. They work all over the country with power companies. Um, we also have uh, one other quick question. We may have to get it across the break, get the answer across the break. But, Lawrence, uh, you want to talk about electric vehicles. Welcome to the show.
8: Thank you. Yes, I think this is a hugely important conversation to uh, slow global warming. The uh, electric vehicles are going to add quite a bit of load to the, the grid, but with demand response between the utilities and the chargers for the cars, of course, we can shape that load and charge when it's cheap during the day or maybe overnight on base load uh, hydro if we still have it. But even more important is that we can use the batteries in the cars as grid storage through bi-directional charging. And this is in its infancy right now in the U.S. But the chargers, two manufacturers, so three, have come up with chargers. Um, the charging, the fast charging standard uh, that we most, most of us use, the SAE CCS, Um, allows it and we need to put pressure on the manufacturers of the cars and the chargers and utilities to all work together and put this out so we have this available to uh, shed load and actually use have grid storage for the evenings when people come home Mm -hmm. charge slowly during the day and then be on bi-directional chargers in the evening uh, when people get home and turn on all the lights especially as we electrify our homes yeah
3: I mean I think what I find fascinating about you know all of these solutions is just how different they are from the grid as it was built in the old days right where you would have a few large generating stations even during you know the the 1960s and 70s the plan was actually to build ever larger right it was just about scaling the power plants and now of course we have a network that looks a lot different so even though we still call it the grid which still does the same thing, that is, keep the lights on. The innards of it are being rebuilt to respond to these new challenges of our, of our time. We're talking about the state of California's electrical grid with Ivan Penn, a Los Angeles based energy correspondent for the New York Times, Duncan Calloway, an associate professor of energy and resources at UC Berkeley, and Sasha Von Meyer, an independent consultant. She's studied the grid for decades. We want to hear from you. What are your kind of concerns about California's energy grid? The number is 866-733-6786. Or it might be easier to get through on the internet. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on the grid. It's coming up next. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the state of California's electrical grid with the New York Times, Ivan Penn, Berkeley's Duncan Calloway, and Sasha von Meyer, uh, independent expert in grid uh, technology and operation. Let's bring in Tina in Walnut Creek. Welcome, Tina.
8: Oh, hello. I'm on the phone.
3: Yes, you are. Welcome to the show.
8: Oh, okay. I thought I gave my question,
5: so I thought it was going to be read. Um, yeah, I have. I, I have. I'm not a rich person. I have a solar array. I have an electric car that needs batteries. However, what I've been trying to find out the last week is how much rooftop solar actually contributes to um, to the grid yeah. at like a time like last week. Yeah. And I have not been able to find anybody who can give me that granular information.
3: Mm. I think we may have your experts here.
2: Uh, Ivan, do you want to want to take this one? Thanks Tina. Uh, well so it actually it, 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 Tina's question is a little bit of a complex one as well because uh, the, when you look at the the macro grid data, you don't really see what the what we refer to as the distributed, resources uh, contributions um, you often have to go to those who um, are the the representatives of mm-hmm. um, the rooftop solar the distributed the microgrids, though those suppliers those um, groups of folks because you don't necessarily see all of that and and part of because part of the trouble uh, i did a story about hawaii which has the the largest amount uh, the largest penetration of rooftop solar. They actually uh, w- were decisive in trying to determine how much rooftop is coming on to the grid mm. at various times. That's not done in most states. So we don't really uh, see that. And we didn't really see it when you looked at the charts on the, um, the, uh, the grid manager CalISO's Cal uh, website, you don't see a line that says uh, rooftop solar. You see solar. You see batteries. You see natural gas. You see nuclear, uh, but you you don't see a line that says this is rooftop. So it's hard to to, to discern what exactly um, that contribution is. However, we know that there are um, m- more than a million rooftop solar systems in the in the state of California, and they are contributing in significant ways and increasingly those systems have been coupled with batteries and you know to to very quickly add to some of those other questions about you know where things are going how we can balance it out i mean part of the picture is where um not only uh, are, are, the, are the, the, the rooftop solar and batteries, the purview of the, of the wealthy. But you see in places like, like Utah where batteries are in apartment buildings and they're creating what they're calling battery swarms to help the grid. Um, and it means that the person who's renting an apartment can uh, also have uh, electricity when the grid goes down. In an apartment, so some of this is about how we handle policy, how we manage uh, the resources in a transition that is enormously difficult. To uh, um, you know, as you said, a hundred years ago the grid did not contemplate two-way electricity, and so we're trying to understand how all these pieces come together, including the contributions of of rooftop. We've got a
3: series of questions about PG&E and the California Public Utilities Commission. So uh, I'm going to read two comments, and then we're going to go to Jay in, uh, in San Jose. Uh, Comment one. John writes, our uh, solar system was installed in May 2021. One year later, PG&E trued up our account. PG&E paid us three cents per kilowatt hour for the net 4,400 kilowatt hours that we supplied, even though it charges us 28 cents per kilowatt hour at least. And PG&E is pushing the California Public Utilities Commission to pay even less. Dan writes, aren't PG&E at all fighting the ability of individuals to sell power back to the system? And Jay in San Jose, you're on with us. Thanks
1: hey um so yeah i love this discussion and i hear renewable 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 and the rhetoric is consistent at the federal and state levels but the fact of the matter is is that cpuc is actively trying to kill the solar industry right now it's called net energy metering three i mean what they proposed back in december would have tripled your payback period so i just don't know what the hell's going on here and um and i'd really love to hear uh from the experts mm. about their uh, opinions on the vehicle-to-grid the technology where the car can plug into your house mm. to serve as a backup and also to relieve the demand from the grid, yeah. and, and that's about it.
3: Hey, Jay, thank you hey. so much. I mean, I think one thing that's really fascinating is the rise of electric cars had generated a lot of people who are interested in vehicle-to-grid technologies. If you'd said that 10 years ago, no one would have known who you were talking about. Um, Sasha, why don't uh, we have you take on the, the PUC sure. questions slash pg and questions?
5: Yes, and, and I want to thank the caller for that question because there's a really legitimate Uh, question about, you know, when you have net zero uh, energy uh, solar customers or microgrids, the question is, what's a fair share for that solar customer to be paying uh, for the benefit of still being connected uh, to the grid and being able to draw power from it uh, as a backup when, when we need to. And so the, you know, the changes in the uh, net energy metering, uh, rules basically reflect the sense that um, you know it, it, the concern that uh, customers who can afford to have solar on their house perhaps weren't paying their fair share uh, for the infrastructure um, because could it Sasha we it? but uh, <laughs> what we don't want to do is stick the customers who can least afford uh, to put solar on their house uh, with the bill, right? The problem is it's mixing two different issues one is equity among customers, uh, and the other is incentivizing solar over other energy resources, which benefits society in general, and making solar more affordable for everyone. So I think that really we're asking too much of electricity tariffs. Uh, It's too heavy a lift to solve all of our problems. That is, single-handedly solving climate change and addressing the absurd amount of income and wealth inequality uh, that we have. So um, I think that uh, really it's going to take more than just electricity tariffs to figure out how do we as a society pay for the infrastructure upgrades that we will need to to pay to maintain uh, the infrastructure and at at the same time encourage more solar to be added to the grid because it does help everyone.
3: But such, let me ask you this. I, I can imagine some listeners out there saying, well, actually, isn't this the nature of this energy regulation and who gets money where? Isn't that also reflective of the sort of concentrated lobbying power of the utility industry versus the distributed lobbying power of a bunch of people who put solar on their homes and who aren't necessarily, you know, going to the CPUC meetings and in the ear of those people? Um, I, I, is that fair? That's part of it, too, right?
5: You know, I I think it's fair to look at it through the lens of power and influence. uh, But I think I personally look at it through a lens of, you know, there's reasonable arguments uh, on Mm -hmm. all sides about um, what is what is the best allocation uh, of the cost burden. The fact of the matter is it costs money um, to uh, maintain this infrastructure and uh, it's really difficult to come up with the perfect mechanism Mm -hmm. to make sure that sort of everyone pays a fair share and that that's logical sort of in terms of our um, Mm. economic transactions. Um, So I I, want to say I do believe that um, we should get a better deal for uh, injecting solar into the grid. There's also a a question of really... um, a customers for actually performing beneficial distribution system services. That's mm-hmm. not part of our tariff structure today. I think with some intelligent control, we can get a whole lot more local value out of um, solar and storage uh, resources, which really isn't captured today. So I think uh, we should be encouraging and rewarding that. Uh, but someone also has to pay for the infrastructure.
3: Yeah. We're going to have a pledge cutaway in a second, so I'm going to go quickly. We have a couple of like real service questions here that I'd love to, to get to. Uh, Ivan, maybe I'll, I'm going to toss these to you. One is, when there's a flex alert, is the grid able to use the backup batteries that homeowners have installed with their solar panels? Those houses should be disconnected from the grid to use their own batteries during an emergency. Is that how it works?
2: Uh, Well, so there is a, even if people recall uh, back in August 2020, when we had the uh, actual rolling blackouts, there was actually a lot of those distributed batteries, um, particularly on the commercial side, but also on the residential side that helped to support the grid. So this does happen. And uh when we start looking at the automating things, um, both in in terms of managing you know the, the EV question and all of that, when you when you when you are able to take software to manage a lot of those distributed resources in a way that you can um, can really discern what's available and sending that to the grid, then it's even going to be- become more efficient. But that has been happening already.
3: Yeah. Um, Duncan, let's go to you for this other very servicey question. Len writes, given the strain on the grid, is now the time to push for electrifying homes? I'm considering whether I should convert my gas appliances to induction cooking and to electric heat pumps for heating space and water. Should I put these projects off? If so, for how long?
4: I would say my recommendation is um, well. So let me back up, and we've got tremendous amount of electrification that needs to happen if we're going to hit decarbonization goals and bring ourselves to um, IPCC recommendations on degrees of warming. Um, If customers replace appliances as they um, uh, as they need to be, so sort of normal appliance replacement schedules. And instead of um, replacing them with natural gas-powered things, uh, we use electric. And I think we'll get a long way there. There are other experts that would be able to say whether we need to sort of go a step beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you should be taking appliances that are in working order today and uh, choosing to replace them with electricity, I think that's a more nuanced decision. Yeah. Um, and it's it's one that... that um, yeah, I'll let others chime in on if they have opinions.
3: This yeah. is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, also get the uh, pledge free stream, which you should absolutely do. Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, uh go ahead, Sasha. You were just uh just cutting.
5: Sure it. following up uh on what Duncan said, I would say absolutely go ahead uh with the electrification because it it, while we acknowledge that there are challenges for the electric grid it's not as though we have this huge supply shortage right we had an extreme circumstance last week and we made it with without anyone getting hurt uh, and in the big scheme of things it really didn't require draconian measures so And that was, to date, sort of a worst-case scenario. So uh, to put it in perspective, I wouldn't say in the big picture we have a huge electricity supply shortage. We are building more. Uh, We're building more solar, uh, more storage. And uh, I would say, you know, roll with the inspiration. Go ahead and electrify. Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, Let's bring in Alexis in Sacramento. Yeah,
5: thanks so much. Um, Just wanted...
1: Oh,
3: hi. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Sorry. Did you have a question or do you want me to just. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, no.
3: Dive in. Dive in.
1: Okay, perfect. Thanks so much. Um, I was just going to share that, uh, you know, this is the third year in a row in California where the governor issued an emergency proclamation that loosened protections and allowed more fossil fuels. Uh, to fossil fuel plants to run, and also pay customers to run their diesel backup generators, right? Even in the state's most polluted communities, and understanding that we're we're facing a huge crisis here, knowing that extreme heat is a is a norm now, you know, year after year, and that it is really being caused by climate change, but also recognizing that California has had decades to plan ahead and to really be building out the clean energy that would be uh, necessary in order to keep the lights on and also keep you know, the air safe to breathe for people. Um, Working class communities of color in California, otherwise known as environmental justice communities, have have really borne the brunt of fossil fuel infrastructure and pollution, and now, Every year, they're facing an even greater amount of pollution because the state is not really doing the, you know, what is necessary to have a clean and safe, reliable electricity grid. So, just want to echo, you know, what I've been hearing from others. We we really want to see that clean energy build out at, at the scale and pace that's needed. And then, a, on top of that, we really want to see the state prioritize the the, you know, uh, flexibility on the grid, demand response, especially those programs that. Pay low-income customers to conserve energy during critical times yeah. because those customers are the ones that can really benefit from those bill savings while contributing to, uh, you know, to, to the reliability of the electricity grid during these really really difficult times. So, I just yeah. wanted to share that.
3: Hey, Alexis in Sacramento, thank you so much. Always love having another Alexis on the show. Uh, Duncan, can you uh, can you address that, that that the environmental justice implications of all these changes and how those communities are are being prioritized, if they are.
4: Yeah, I think that um, there are a couple of ways to come at this question. So, so I fully agree with the points that the caller is making, and and I would say that um, there when we think about uh, the backup generator example um, that was given. The measures that are in place to encourage uh, backup generator use in those sort of extreme times are at least designed to prevent generators that are in disadvantaged communities from operating. So, so the, the measures are designed with uh, communities, disadvantaged communities in mind. Now the execution may not be perfect. The other thing though, that I wanna say is that, what the, I think the caller is exactly right, that we've in some respects fallen short of goals on supply. And have to resort to um, things like backup generator use in these extreme situations. And um, there are a number of different new laws that actually were just passed um, uh, in the state uh, last uh, last month um, that are designed specifically to try to unclog the pipeline of transmission projects, new generation permitting, um, and uh, and and bringing in new sorts of storage and generation plants. And and so. I'm hopeful, cautiously hopeful that those sorts of things will get more supply on the grid so that we can avoid needing to um, burn fossil fuels in communities that um, have been impacted. the
3: most. Yeah. You know, Ivan, before we go, I just want you to put on your, you know, reporter hat, you know, the field that's out there. What, what are you really looking to next? Like what's your what do you think your next big story is going to be on California
2: energy? Uh, well, <laughs> I can't tell you my next big story, but <laughs> but the but the paint sort of the, the the picture of you know where where a lot of the focus is, um, you know what what we have to really think about in terms of of the future is how we're going to um, really change the incentives for the utility industry, which mm-hmm. has been a, a a big issue that a lot of folks sort of uh, have been raising. Our incentives have been uh, designed to support a lot of uh, fossil fuel uh, construction and development. And so now as we move into this new, new world, we've got to figure out how do we incentivize them to um, manage things differently.
3: That's a beautiful ending. We have been talking about the state of California's electrical grid with Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for the New York Times, UC Berkeley's Duncan Calloway, and grid expert Sasha Von Meyer. Thank you so much to all three of you. That was brilliant. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.